We are continuing, we're going to conclude, continue and conclude, a short two-part series on true worship. And we'll jump in next week. We're going to look at uh, the triumphal entry of Christ leading to his crucifixion. And then we will have uh, a wonderful Easter service on April the 17th. And we're going to have some cards. I don't know if we had them today. Do we have them today? They're at the welcome desk. And you may have gotten them uh, when you got your bulletin and your notes, but it's an invitation card. And so that invitation card is just going to give you a way to be able to give those to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends, to those you meet in public. So we want to give them to you this Sunday and next Sunday. And just bring them wherever you want to go. Invite people to come to service on April the 17th. And we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to believe to see people born again on Easter Sunday. Would you pray with me towards that end? So we are going to conclude this two-part series. And uh, so last week we, we talked about the reality that, that only those who belong to Christ can be true worshipers. That if you don't know the Lord, you cannot worship him in truth. And so we, we read a section in Matthew chapter 7 about how many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and did we not do that and did we not do this? And the Lord will say on that day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or unrighteousness. And so we, we talked about how that shocking statement from our Lord, how does that really impact our life? And it really challenges us to think deeply about our faith and about what, what, what we believe and how we are living and our confession of faith. And it challenges us to really think deeply about way, the way we articulate the gospel of Christ, that we don't want to articulate a gospel that is not true. We want to articulate the true gospel, the gospel of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, and the reality that all men have fallen short of the glory of God, and only through faith in Christ can one be forgiven. And so, True worship can only come from the lips of true worshipers. So we talked about who, who can be true worshipers. Well, today, we're going to talk about worship itself. What is worship and how do we worship? And, and really what I'm going to do here this morning is I'm going to really talk about what I believe is an assessment of what the evangelical world, in particular in America, uh, looks like as concerning worship. And so we're going to unpack that, and I've titled the message this morning, Hijacked Worship. Hijacked Worship. So would you pray with me before we jump in? Father, we we come before you this morning, and, and we do thank you for the privilege of gathering to worship you, to worship you through song, to worship you through prayer, to worship you through the reading of your word, to worship you through the hearing of your word, through the preaching and hearing of your word. And I pray that as Your word is preached and taught here this morning. I pray that we would all have ears to receive and to listen. I pray that you would challenge us and convict us and help us to become more like Christ in the way in which we worship you. And I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on on November 24th, 1971, on November 24, 1971, a man named Dan Cooper, otherwise known as D.B. Cooper. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Who was born before 1971? D.B. Cooper. He hijacked a plane. It was flying from Portland to Seattle. And so there's only, there was only 36 passengers that were on the plane. And he, he, he gets on the plane. And he has a briefcase. And he opened it up and showed the stewardess and all the, 
the plane workers and showed them wires and what looked like to be a bomb and said, I'm going to blow up this plane unless you, you land the plane. And, and so they landed the plane. After they landed the plane, he dismissed the 36 passengers and said, I want the pilot and the co-pilot and the steward, a stewardess and some of the crew to stay on the flight. And I want you to fly. I, 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 I want you to fly over Mexico City. But before we leave, I want $200,000 in cash and four parachutes. I don't know why four parachutes. He was by himself, but he wanted 200000 in cash and four parachutes. So they, they, they get him $200,000 in $20 bills, and they get him the parachutes, and they take off, and they fly over Mexico City, and he tells them to get down to 10,000 feet, and he takes the $200,000 in cash, and they open the door for him, and he jumps out, never to be seen before, never to be seen ever again, Never. It's it. Was never caught. Don't know if he died in his descent. Don't know if the parachute opened or didn't open. Never to be found. In 2016, the FBI closed the case. They said, we're wasting resources trying to find this guy. It, it was said when I was reading about this, this hijacking, it was said that somewhere along the Mexico city area, there was found buried, somebody found buried a case with about $2,500 worth of $20 bills, and it matched the serial number of the ones that they gave him. So we do know that he probably made it down, but he hijacked a plane. What type of courage does it take to do that, or stupidity to do that, and to jump out of a plane? He hijacked it, and I I believe that just as D.B. Cooper hijacked a Boeing 727 in 1971, I believe true worship of God has been hijacked by many lesser things. We talked about true worshipers, but I believe that true worship has been hijacked today by many lesser things. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what worship is and what it has become and and where we have gone astray in the evangelical world and where we need to return to. And I really have three simple assessments of what I, what I see. And I believe what, what many of us see here today. We can see these assessments. And I think it's important for, for, for us to hear these things articulated. Because some of you here today, you see it, but you struggle to articulate it and to understand why is it wrong? What is off about it? There's something you sense, this is not right in what I'm seeing in the broader evangelical world concerning worship. So I want to try to help you here today. I want to help us all here today. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to look at these assessments and we're going to look at three sections of scripture. I'm not going to hone in on one section and exposit that section. We're going to look at the three assessments and three sections of scripture connected to these assessments and we're going to unpack what it looks like to really worship God. What is true worship? So here's what, here's what we're going to do. We're, we will start with an overarching view of worship. The 30,000 foot view, no pun intended with the D.B. Cooper introduction, but we're going to go to the 30,000 plus foot view of worship. We're going to look at all of what is worship for our entire life. We look at the 30,000 foot view. Then we're going to walk through the doors of the church. This will be the second assessment. We're going to walk through the doors of the church and look at the gathering on Sunday. And what does that look, what, what does worship look like on Sunday? Or what should it look like? What does it look like? What should it look like? And then we will conclude looking at the songs that we sing. The songs that we sing. So here's my first assessment. A first assessment of what I see, what I've seen for, for, for many years, at least a, a decade or more plus, 
I see that for many people, worship has been reduced to three songs in 20 minutes. Three songs and 20 minutes. When you ask most people today, after they leave a church service, you ask them, how was worship today? How was worship today? Many of you, even right now, if I was to ask you that question, how was worship a few minutes ago? You would think only of the three songs that we sung for 20 minutes that we started our service with. Or sometimes people will go to a church service and they'll gauge what they thought about the church service based upon the three songs that we sang for 20 minutes. Worship, worship, was, worship was good or worship was bad. And so this is what so many people think when they think about worship. Is that it's music only. That it's the, only the songs we sing when we gather And so I believe that that view of worship falls woefully short of what worship really is. If if worship is only the songs we sing on Sunday, we are missing the mark of what it means to be a true worshiper. Again, we saw last week a true worshiper can only be the ones who have placed their faith in Christ. And if those who have placed their faith in Christ only worship God for 20 minutes on Sunday mornings once a week then they really are not true worshipers. Worship is so much more than the songs that we sing. And, and, and really, we see this throughout all of Scripture. I could have had many, many Scriptures that, we, that could have gone to to really unpack this reality. But I want to look at Romans chapter 12 to talk about this first assessment of what worship is. Look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if if you notice what the Apostle Paul says here, and he does this a lot in a lot of his letters, whether it's Romans or Ephesians, in, in almost all of his letters, what he does is, is he starts with profound truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he, after he pivots from this profound truth concerning the gospel of Christ, then he moves over to how that should impact our everyday life. And that's the language he uses in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. My appeal to you as true worshipers is look at the mercy of God. In the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul, for 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul expresses the depths of the gospel as revealed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in those first three chapters, it culminates with this, Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is sinless. All have sinned. And we all fail to meet the perfect standard of God's holiness. Then you, then you look at chapters 4 through 6 and that ends by saying, okay, so we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, Romans 6, 23 culminates with this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that powerful? He's first three chapters. All are guilty. All are guilty. The world is guilty. The religious Jew is guilty. Everyone, those who don't believe in God are guilty. Everyone is guilty. All of sin. Chapter six, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then chapter 10, 
This is the message we preach. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The mercies of God. Where would we be without the mercies of God? Because we have all sinned, and we all fail to meet the standard of God's perfect holiness. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sins on the cross. And so if we will do what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we will be saved. Therefore, in view of the mercies of God, Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 10, The Apostle Paul appeals, he says, when you think about those mercies, in view of those mercies, what should our response be in worship? What does that worship look like? What does it say? Look back at the text. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Does it say present the three songs and the 20 minutes you sing on Sunday? Does it say present even your church attendance? Does it say present your, your giving of your finances? Does it say present? No, it, it says present your bodies, all of you, as a living sacrifice. My life is a living sacrifice of worship. And he says this is our spiritual worship. This is our spiritual worship. Our spiritual worship is our entire life presented to the Lord. It's not a compartmentalized view of our Christianity. You know, there's this idea that some people have of this separation between sacred and non-sacred. It's been such an idea throughout history that there's the sacred things that we do. And then when I leave the sacred things and I go to the non-sacred things, but there really is no separation for for the believer. Everything is sacred because we are called to be a living sacrifice and to worship God with all of our life. The entire life of the believer is meant to be a sacred reflection of a heart of worship. So it is so true that worship is so much, much more than just songs that we sing on Sunday, songs that we sing as we're driving in our car. Worship is so much more than just songs. Worship is our, is intended to be our entire life. In fact, You could have somebody who comes and sings to the top of their lungs on a Sunday morning and lives like the devil on Monday. They are not a true worshiper. They've deceived themselves in believing that there's a separation between the sacred and the and or or the holy and the unholy, and that they can live however they want to live. They've not truly come to belief and repentance in Christ. They've not truly been transformed. Worship is much more than three songs sung for twenty minutes. Well, where else do we see this in Scripture? There's so many places. I just want to look at two more, just briefly. Philippians 1, Apostle Paul again. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Speaking of his, his imprisonment. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And how is he saying Christ will be honored in his body? Whether by life or by death. Wow. What a perspective. What is Paul saying there in Philippians? He's saying, he's saying I'm going to honor God with my life. That means all of my life. That means as long as I live, Christ will be honored in my life. 
and he will also be honored in my death. That when I go to die, when the Lord calls me home, like Warren Beamer got called home on Friday, he, he honored the Lord in his death. That is the life of a true worshiper, that all of our life and even in the culmination of our life at our death, it is lived for the glory of God, for the worship of the one true God. This is what true worship is. Here's another section Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought You were bought, you were paid for by the blood of Christ, for you were bought. So glorify God in your body. Do you notice the same type of thing that Paul did in Romans? He does here in 1 Corinthians. He says, you were bought, so live this way. Because of the mercies of God, do this. Present your bodies. You were bought, this is what God did. He paid the price for your sins on the cross. You were bought with the price when you placed your faith in him. So, as a result, glorify God. God with your body, with your life, with all of you. That is true, genuine worship. We present all of our life to God as worship. Have you guys ever seen the movie, The The Count of Monte Cristo? Or excuse me, I should say before the movie, have you ever read the novel, The Count of Monte Cristo? Yeah, you can talk back to me. Yeah, yeah, it's the one with um, uh, the actors Jim Caviezel. Jesus was the actor. And... uh, so he plays Edmund Dantes. Jim Caviezel plays Edmund Dantes. And Edmund Dantes, um, he, he basically gets wrongfully accused and thrown in prison for many, many years. And the story goes that while he's there, he learns, he, learns, he gets educated. There's a, there's a man in there that, that educates him and, and, um, and helps him to find God and, and teaches him to fight and all these things. And, and they, they figure out a way to dig a tunnel under the prison to get out. So he escapes after all of these years and he's ready for vengeance, Right. And so he, he gets out and he washes ashore on the beach. And the scene picks up when he washes ashore. There's some pirates that are on the beach. And the leader of the pirates comes up to Edmund Dantes and says, and says okay, here's what's going to happen. We're either going to slit your throat or you're going to do what we say. And here's what we want you to do. We have one of our, our crewmen that we don't like very much. And he has to make a choice here. He's either going to do what we say or we're going to slit his throat. And so what we want you to do is we want you to fight to the death, a knife fight to, to the death with this guy named Jacopo. And so uh, Edmund Dantes says, well, I would be happy to, to fight with your, your, uh, your seaman and kill him. And, uh, and I'll, become, I'll, become a part of, I'll become a part of your crew. And so they get together and, and they, they get ready to fight. And Edmund and Jacopo get ready. And Edmund tackles Jacopo and he lands on the ground. And he could, he could kill him with the knife, but he slams the knife into the sand. And he makes a proposition to the leader of the pirates and says, Hey, the ones of, of your crew who wanted to see some sport, they've seen it. Uh, and those who wanted mercy for Jacopo are going to get it. He said, And now you have an extra skilled fighter and sailor for your crew. Let us both live. And he said, Okay, you can both live. Jacopo grabs Edmund Dantes's shirt and pulls him in close to him. And he says this, I swear on my dead relatives and even on the ones who are not feeling too well, I am your man forever. I am your man forever. And that, my brothers and sisters, is true worship. 
when we have been spared our life eternally by the God of creation, we pull in close to God and we say, I, my life is yours forever. Not just the times I sing, not just the times I read my Bible, not just the times I come to church, but in every area of my life. God, my life is yours forever. I am your man. I am your woman forever. I am yours forever. So, so what, what does it look like? What does it look like in our everyday life? How do we live this out? How do we live out a life of worship in every area of our life? I, I clearly cannot list every area of our life. But here's just some thoughts of how this plays out. How do we worship God in our life? Well, we, we do it in our marriage, husbands and wives, by staying true to our spouse, by walking in purity, by, by loving our spouse as Christ has loved us, by serving and being gentle and kind, by by pursuing our spouse in marriage. We, that, that, that's worship. Husbands, wives, don't ever think it's not sacred or, or holy whenever you romance each other. You spend time together. When I took my wife on that beach trip last week, we were worshiping. And it was holy and it was wonderful because we were spending time together. That is worship unto the Lord. That's, our, that's how we worship in our marriage. In my relationship with my children, you know, I often talk and joke about things I do with my kids that I don't want any of you to see because we have a lot of dance parties at my house and I will pull up my pajamas, you know, really high up, but above my belly button, tuck in my shirt and uh, start dancing. We have a great time and that is worship. Doesn't sound like worship, doesn't look like what we do here in the sacred times of the church service, but me engaging with my kids and loving them as God has called me to love them, Reagan. Do we do that? Does Daddy do that? Absolutely. We have picture proof, but we delete them. It's blackmail, but we get rid of them. It's worship. Spending quality time with my children. And how about this one? In your singleness, in your times of singleness, when you are keeping yourself pure for the, for the one that God has given you, when you're living the, 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 when you're taking advantage of that time that you have that you may not have when you get married and you're using it for the glory of God, that's worship on the job. Worship God on your job. Show up on time. That's worship. Being late is not honoring God. It's not worship to God. Show up on time. Work hard. Be diligent. Be faithful. That is worship on your job. In school, students, making A's is worship to the Lord. I don't know when it stops to be worship. Is it B or is it C? D clearly might not be worship. I don't know. F, I don't, I don't know. But, but worship the Lord with perseverance and faithfulness and commitment, obeying. How about during competition? You ever worship during competition? What does it look like to worship during competition? It looks like when you lose, that you lose nicely. That's worship. That's glorifying God. And we don't see it as worship because we think, well, how's that worship? Well, well, people know in your life if you're a believer because you're living your faith. And they say, well, that's what a Christian does. A Christian, when he loses or she loses, they lose in a way that honors God. How about with my finances? I honor God with my finances. Put him first in, a, in every area of my finances. What I watch, what I listen to, the way I think and talk, how I treat people. How about this is worship? Choosing to trust God instead of fear. That's worship. You know, there's many reasons we face today to be fearful. 
But when we choose to trust God instead of fear, that is worship unto our God with our life. Faith and perseverance through trial is worship. It's worship unto God. So, so, so just think about this. I just barely touched the surface. Think about all of the ways in which we worship our creator. <laughs> worship is so much, much more than three songs for 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. An entire life lived for the worship and glory of God is much more impactful than relegating our worship to our Sunday morning songs. So this was a 30,000 foot view. This was the easy assessment. It's going to get a little more challenging here towards the middle of the, the message here. You're going to challenge our thinking, but this is the big picture. This is where it starts. We, we cannot worship God in spirit and in truth if we don't start with this big perspective that we must be a true worshiper first, and, and we must worship God with all of our life. All of our life is worship unto God, not just music and songs. Okay, so that's the 30,000-foot perspective. Let's now open the doors to the church, whether it's our church or any other church that you might go to, let's open the doors to the church and the, let's look at what happens when we gather as a, a body. Let's take a step into the sanctuary. Here's a second assessment of what I believe has happened to worship. Worship has been turned into something we experience instead of what we offer. Worship has been turned into something we experience instead of what we offer. I want to read a quote. This is is from a man who wrote an article for Crosswalk.com. And this is his assessment connecting with what I just said here. It says, in the American evangelical church, worship has taken on a subculture of sorts. I've often heard Christians make statements about a certain church or service like, worship wasn't that great this morning. Or "The, the sermon was okay, but the worship was so good. Statements like these always make me wonder who is actually being worshipped, God or the church attendees themselves. The idea behind this is if the energy of the music doesn't produce some sort of an emotional response, there is something wrong with the music, the band, or the worship leader. Therefore, the worship is bad. Worship has turned in many places, in many churches, in the evangelical landscape, has turned to something we experience instead of what we offer. And this, I want to tell you, is foreign to Scripture. The idea of being, worship being something we experience versus what we offer is not what we see in Scripture. And I, I could spend just a huge amount of time in this section reading Scripture after Scripture that demonstrates. The section we read in first, Brian read in First Chronicles 29, that section, the context of that is the building of Solomon's temple. And how the people of God were coming to the house of God to bring an offering, not just of their finances and of their goods, but they were coming to bring an offering of worship to the Lord. And, and just in that section, there's so many other sections throughout the Old Testament in the, into the New Testament that worship is about what we offer, not what we experience. Here, here's, here's one section, Hebrews 13. We're going to look at a couple of more, give you a big picture of what this looks like in Scripture. Hebrews 13 says, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do, do, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews, when, when the writer of Hebrews here is using the word offer up, offer up, sacrifices, offer up, 
these, these readers are Jewish Christians. So, so this audience, he's using that type of language because they know a lot about offering and sacrifices and the way in which God prescribed worship to take place in the Old Testament and the way we see that God established worship. So that he's addressing a group of people that would have known clearly what it means to worship God and that it is offering, it is sacrifice, it is bringing. And the worship of God as he established for his people was always about bringing, offering, sacrificing, surrendering, presenting to God an offering of worship. It was never a posture of here or, or, or here. It was always a posture of here, presenting, bringing, offering, sacrificing. Long before the law of God was given and the sacrificial system was instituted, do you remember Cain and Abel? They both brought an offering. Look at Genesis chapter 4. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Meaning that God didn't acknowledge and honor the sacrifice and the offering of Cain, only of Abel's. And if you go into the Old Testament, you go past Genesis into Leviticus. You see that in Leviticus, there was five different types of offerings that were prescribed by God for his people to bring before him to the temple to worship. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but just to, 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 to state them briefly, you had the burnt offering. The burnt offering was the sacrifice of bulls and sheep and doves. The grain offering, it was grains that were used to bake unleavened bread in the, in the, in the, in the ceremony and the worship of God. The peace offering, it was provisions made to facilitate a meal of reconciliation be, between people. Then you had the sin offering, and this was connected to the burnt offering. Offerings that dealt with atonement for sin. Then you had the guilt offering. These were offerings that dealt with restitution for wrongdoing. Bringing, offering, sacrifices. We're coming to the house of God with something to offer, with something to bring. It's a different posture. Worship of God was established to be an offering about offering something to the Lord, bringing something to God. Worship was a posture of humility before the Lord that centered around bringing instead of receiving. Bringing, bringing. So my question, when we see this, and this, I barely scratched the surface. You got, I, I could've, we could have went to seminary school here this morning and, and just digging in all these scriptures. I barely scratched the surface of the pictures of what it looks like to worship God by bringing and sacrificing and bringing an offering of worship. So my question is, what has happened to this posture of worship today? In the modern evangelical church, what has happened to it? Because if I look around, and I know if you look around, so often when we gather as a people of God in the house of God, we must ask the question, what are we humbly bringing to him? And looking at the broader evangelical church in America, I believe this has been lost. It has been hijacked by a different approach altogether. So what is the approach? This is what I believe is the approach. People do not come to offer something or to give something to the Lord in worship. The posture is consumerism. It's, con- it's consumerism. It's coming through the doors and I'm ready to consume something that my senses will hear and see. And that's why we make statements. How was worship today? Uh, it was okay. 
How can worship be okay or not okay? Let's think about that for a second. How could worship ever not be okay? Maybe the singer was off key. Maybe the drummer got off the click. Maybe the music didn't sound like we wanted it to sound. But how could genuine, true worship of God never not be okay? When a true worshiper is offering to the Lord genuine worship from the heart, how could it never not be good? It's always good. And and this is how we know that the posture of worship has been hijacked by a consumerism, experience-driven posture. That we come in waiting, preacher, what are you going to tell me? What are you going to give me today? Ah, the sermon was okay. It was okay. He kind of was a little long-winded and he kind of poked at me a little too much. Like I'm poking right now. It's completely foreign to the Bible. You know, the title people give to their church services even reflects this change. You'll hear churches that say, come to our 9 a.m. worship experience. And what, what, why do we call it? We, we call a worship service a service for a reason. Why do we call it a service? It's not just because it's been called a service forever. We call it a service because we're coming to serve God with our worship and serve one another with our worship. But when we have bought into the consumeristic experience-driven model of worship, then what we do is when we come into the building, we put on the hat of an experience-driven consumer. So that's why, yeah, it's, if that's the model, then it is correct to call it a worship experience. Consumers consume an experience. Worshipers come to give. If what we do on Sundays is meant to be an experience, here, listen, if what we do on Sundays is meant to be an experience, then man becomes the center, not God. I mean, just think about that practically. If what we do is meant to be an experience for you to come and consume something, then God is no longer the center. We are. We are the center. It's about what I think about the songs, what I think about how it sounds, what I think about the message, what I think about how you impacted my life. I'm thinking about myself versus I am Coming with the mindset of, God, I'm coming today to the house of God, with the people of God, to offer you something. Doesn't matter what the songs sound like. Doesn't matter if I like them or I don't like them. Sermon might not be that good today. But God, I'm coming for you. You know, if if you decide to open a business one day, let's just hypothetical. You open a business and you're in the hamburger cooking business and you open a burger joint and you start cooking your burgers and selling them to the public and the public comes and starts eating your burgers and and on Yelp you start getting reviews you ever read Yelp reviews or Google right you see the reviews and and you start getting reviews slowly and surely you get reviews that says um, man that burger is really not good it's kind of greasy. It's, it's, you know, you start getting all these negative reviews. You would be a fool if you didn't change what you do. Because if you don't change what you do based upon the survey from Yelp, the reviews from Yelp, you're going to go out of business. Because the consumer is coming to consume something and they don't like what they're consuming. So they're going to eventually, unless you change, they're going to go to another business to receive something from that business. And so what happens is a lot of churches who have that consumeristic, experience-driven mindset, they're really big on surveys. Well, what do people want? What does a non-believer want to hear? 
What don't they want to hear? What, what, what do people want to hear and sing and listen to? And what, what, do they, what are they interested in? So if, the, if, if it is a consumerism model that we are doing in church, well, then we do become like the burger joint. And we cater to the customer. And if the customer gets unhappy with our service and what we're offering them, then they'll go to another burger joint to listen and to consume. And here's what I want to tell you. This is where it's gone off. Our job as a church is not to figure out what people want or what pleases them. Our responsibility and my responsibility as a pastor is to figure out what God wants for us and what pleases him. Our job is not to give out a survey so we can cater to what people want. We already have a survey and it is the word of God. And we know what he has prescribed for us in worship. And just, this, this right here, what, what, we're, what I've dove into, I told you, it was a little deeper than the first point. I got you kind of your toes in for the first point. It, it, this is a completely different paradigm. But it is true that the worship of God is not a business. It's not a business. And if we're not careful, we can be lulled to sleep by this pragmatic, consumeristic view of church. What is it? What's pragmatism? What does it mean to be pragmatic? It means pragmatism is the study of the idea of if it works, it's true. If it works, it's good. If it gets people in the building, then you keep doing it. If it gets people in your burger joint, then you keep doing that because you want people in the burger joint because you own a business. You're running a business. But pragmatism doesn't work in church. We're called to be biblical, not pragmatic. We're called to be faithful to God and his word and preach the gospel as he's prescribed it and we leave the results up to God if we're not careful we can be lulled to sleep by this pragmatic consumeristic view of church and then and then the result is is that worshiping on Sunday morning with fellow believers moves from something we offer to the Lord to something we consume for our own pleasure and tragically what can happen is is that I, I believe that just as the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering, that it is possible for us to completely turn the worship of God upside down and that it is no longer the worship of God but is rather the worship of self and that God will have no regard for that kind of worship. Wow. How fearful and humble, humbling to think that God would be with us, but he's not. Because we're not worshiping in the way he's prescribed us to worship him. So how does this apply to our lives? I think it's very simple. Here's how it applies to our lives. Humbly repent if we have replaced the worship of God with the worship of self. That's how it applies. We examine our hearts and we say, God, when I'm coming to the assembly of God, when I'm coming to the household of God, to the family of God, and we're gathering together, God, have I replaced the true worship of you with the worship of myself? Am I coming and I'm, I'm looking to get my, just, just what I want out of it? Or am I coming to worship you no matter what I receive? Because the truth is, is that when we do come, we do receive. We hear the word of God taught and we receive the truth from his word and we receive fellowship and, 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 and unity and love from one another and all those things are good that we receive. But God, am I coming 
to this church or wherever I go because of what I get out of it or am I coming to worship you and to offer you what you alone deserve? And I think if we have gotten off that track, then the the response to this is to say, I'm never going to approach another service in this building or any other church I go to with a mindset of criticizing and watching. Watching. Oh, what, what's, what's coming next? What's going to happen next? What song are they, are they going to sing? Oh, no, not that song. Oh. Right? It's, it's a change. It's a change. It's a posture change of the heart. We say, God, I'm not coming that way. I'm coming, God, to offer you something. Amen? We've looked at the 30,000-foot perspective about worship. Worship is much more than our songs. It's our entire life meant to be worshiped to the Lord. And we walk through the doors of the church, and the question is, is are we worshiping God or ourself when we gather? Lastly, this morning, let's look at the songs that we sing when we gather. Here's my third assessment. Worship has been separated from its biblical foundation. Often, I should add the word often, worship songs have often been separated from its biblical foundation. Let's look at Colossians 3. Such a great section to describe the connection between God's word and the songs we sing. Apostle Paul, again, says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in your hearts to God, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So did you notice the connection? You had singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You had the singing, singing, singing. But did you notice what came before the singing, the singing, the singing? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What happens when the word of Christ dwells in your heart richly? You admonish and you teach and then you sing. The word dwells in you richly, you admonish, you teach, and you sing. The word dwells deep, and you sing the word. This is a direct, there's a direct correlation to God's word dwelling richly in our hearts and the songs that we sing. So often, again, as I said earlier, we separate the preaching and the worship, and we say that, that, that they're not connected, that they're two different things, but in fact, if you don't have the preaching of the word, you can never really truly worship God in truth. The word of God dwelling richly in our hearts produces true, genuine, deep, heartfelt worship. The songs we, sh- we sing should admonish with and teach the truths of God's word. Worship through singing is directly connected to our understanding of God's word. Deep understanding, hear me, follow me. Deep understanding of God's word produces a deep, heartfelt, passionate worship of God. Shallow understanding, an, a, a, a kind of a, a, a backhand, a half-hearted approach to God's word, shallow understanding produces somebody who really can't worship deeply. They can only worship at a shallow level because their understanding hasn't grown. But when you understand the truth of God's word, the riches of his mercy and his grace, and you understand the riches and the deepness of the doctrines of the faith and who God is, his character and his nature, it only deepens the times that we sing songs. The word of God, when we preach it and when we hear it, is worship. We're receiving it with a sincere, true heart. And that 
receiving of the word deepens the well. Hear me, this is so good. It deepens, I, I, I just thought of this as I was preaching. It deepens the well in our heart to be able to lift up true, genuine, passionate worship. So the more we receive the word, the deeper the well is dug, the more passionate and joyful our worship can be. There was a preacher who preached a long sermon one Sunday. I don't know anything about that. But as a preacher preached a long sermon one Sunday, expounding on God's word, and he went into the Greek, and he went into the Hebrew, and he, he built the message, and it was so deep, and he thought very powerful. And a, a church member came up after the service. Sweet church member came up and asked a question said, how can people worship God in church if you spend all your time preaching the Bible? How are they going to be able to worship if you spend all your time preaching the Bible, preacher? And the preacher, just his suit a little bit, tries not to have his pride crushed because clearly she didn't really get much out of the sermon. And he graciously responds like this. He says, how can people worship God at all if I don't preach the Bible. And that's, that's the heart right here of what I'm trying to say. How can we truly worship if we don't have the, the means by which God has spoken to us? The truest, the clearest, the most authoritative way which God has spoken. If this is not lifted up and exalted and taught and pressed into our hearts so that we become more like Christ. If that is not what we do consistently and we're not taught and discipled in God's word, then truly worship cannot really flow from our heart. You remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4 we looked at before we started this series? You worship what you do not know. And I'm afraid in a lot of places, a lot of churches, maybe here today and many other churches, people are worshiping a God they don't know, which means they're truly not worshiping. So that's why here at Living Word, we read God's word. Why did, why, why did we start a, a scripture reading in January? I felt a conviction because Paul, in the Bible, told Timothy, a, a, a pastor in Timothy, he said, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. So we're going to obey the word of God. And we're going to publicly, in a very God-honoring way, the, 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 the elder's going to come up, he's going to open the Bible, and they're going to read it with a heart of reverence for his word. And we as a congregation are going to hear the word of God publicly read. That's worship. We, we read the, God's word. We teach God's word. And then when we sing, we sing God's word. We read it, we teach it, and we sing it. And you know what's so powerful about singing God's word? Is that I can get up here and teach it over and over again, but you put some nice chords behind theology, it becomes doxology. And whenever, and whenever you're struggling to be excited about what I'm saying because I'm stepping on your toes, you put some nice chords and some music behind it, all of a sudden it starts to make sense to you. God created music. He created us to be passionate in our singing. I'm not, I'm not saying any of this is against passion and experience. Listen, when I'm on that front row, you may not see it, but my heart is passionately singing from the depth of my heart, when the word of God is sung and theology and sound doctrine is, is put into the lyrics of the songs and I'm singing that, it's reminding me of what God has done, what he's accomplished for me on the cross by the mercies of God. Then it's this deep well of passion that comes out in song. 
God created music. He created songs. He created them to be powerful to work in the heart of a believer. We sing praises to God based upon how he has revealed himself to us through his word. Look back at the text in Colossians as we're getting ready to conclude here. Notice what happens. I said it earlier, but what happens whenever we, we let the word of God dwell richly and we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs? It says that there's a teaching and an admonishing to one another. Teaching and admonishing one another. Here's another aspect I want us to think about as concerning the songs that we sing when we gather to sing. It's such a special thing when we gather to sing. Listen, the songs we sing when we gather, I'm talking about in this building or at, at a Bible study or, or in a life group, when we gather to sing, the, 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 the songs that we sing, they, they are for God, to be sung to God, to offer him worship. But the songs are also sung for the mutual encouragement of the body of Christ, admonishing one another as we sing when we sing together, it brings encouragement to each other. So, so I encourage you, even if you don't sing good like me, sing loud. <laughs> sing loud. Don't allow the loudness of the music to drown us out. Maybe we'll turn down the volume. I've been waiting for years, some of you, for us to turn down the volume. Maybe we'll turn it down some. So we can hear our voices in unity singing to our God. And why does that encourage us? It encourages us because... I don't know all of your stories. I don't know all your stories, but I know some of your stories. And I know the things that you're walking through. Whenever I look around and I see faces that I know are going through difficult trials in their life and they're singing to the, at the top of their lungs and they're raising their hands in worship, they're surrendering to Christ in song, it builds my faith. It encourages my faith. That's congregational worship. I want to challenge your thinking one more time if I can. The goal of the time that we sing together here, when we gather, the goal is not an individual experience of worship. I want you to think about that. When we're up here as worship leaders, and we're singing and leading songs of worship, the goal is not so you can have your own personal experience, and you can have your own personal experience, and you can have your own, that's that consumeristic type, this is I'm coming for me and my experience. No, the goal of the songs that we sing are so that everyone can have a corporate experience together. That's the goal when we gather, to sing songs that facilitate the corporate congregational singing of true believers and true worshipers that are singing the word of God about who he is, his character, his nature, his gospel, his goodness. We're singing it to the top of our lungs and we're exalting Christ. And it encourages us. I thought about Paul and Silas when I was writing this point of my message. You remember Paul and Silas? They... Uh, messed up the business of a slave owner. Slave owner had a, a slave girl that was like a fortune teller and they cast the devil out of the slave girl and they got mad at Paul and Silas and so they arrested them. Look at Acts 16. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods and when they'd inflicted many blows upon them they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order he put them into the inner prison fastened their feet in the stocks about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Woo! That didn't get you excited. Praying and singing hymns to God in the middle. They just got beaten with rods. They're in stocks and chains. Yet they're singing. And notice what happened. And the prisoners were listening to them. 
See the connection? The songs we sing, the trials we walk through, the suffering we endure, yet we sing in faith. I'm listening. Can I hear you? Can I hear you on Sunday? I would love to hear you. To hear you, to see and hear your worship. It makes an impact. You know, there is a, there's a false belief out there that the Holy Spirit only moves when we sing passionately enough to get him to move. But you know what I, what I believe is that we're not singing to convince the Holy Spirit to move. He's not dangling the carrot of his presence over us. Okay, I'm waiting for you. Sing passionately enough that I'm going to start doing something. No, he's already moving in the midst of a people who are unified with one heart in love and worship of God. He's moving. From the time you walk in that door with a heart set to bring an offering of worship to the Lord, he's there in our midst. He's with us, moving amongst us. The Holy Spirit is already at work in the midst of a people who have not gathered for themselves, who have not gathered just to experience something, but they have gathered to bring an offering of worship in spite of the trials, in spite of the challenges, in faith, gathering to worship our God and to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. So D.B. Cooper hijacked an airplane in 1971. He hijacked an airplane in 1971. Well, I believe that true worship, as prescribed in in Scripture, has been hijacked and replaced by many lesser things in the modern church today. So my encouragement is in 2022, as concerning as goes us here at Living Word, let's take back the heart of the true worship that God desires. So can we stand? Let's sing. We're going to sing a song called Christ Be Magnified. Would you sing with us? That is our heart cry. That you would be magnified in our life. As Paul said there in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. God, that is our prayer. God, as we've looked over these last two weeks of what it means to be true worship, first starting with being a genuine believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, in here today, looking at Father, it's more than just experience. It's not an experience at all. But God, it's a heart of reverence. And it's a way of life. God, it's the way we approach each and everything that we do in our life. God, that we would have a heart of thanksgiving. God, as we gather on a Sunday morning, Father, as we sing your word, as we read your word, as we preach your word, as we pray your word, God, let that be the model for our lives. God, that worship belongs to you and you alone. God, as we walk through our lives, God, that you would convict our hearts in the areas that don't line up. At places where we have gone to this so-called neutral ground, this place that doesn't actually exist as a believer. But God, all things are to give glory to your name. God, it is the chief end of man that glory would be given to you and that we would spend an eternity with you. God, all glory 
All praise go to you, Father, and we ask that you would work in our hearts. And as we leave this service, as we leave this time, Father, where we have offered up what I believe true worship to you, that you would change us, that we would leave differently, God, in the way that we came in. And thank you for true worship. And thank you for saving us so that we could do so. God, it's in your name we pray, and all glory goes to you. Amen. Amen. Love you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.